It's live. I'm pulling up your comments, Z-Pack. This is your boy, Z-Dog MD. We are back at home base in Las Vegas at Studio Z with Tom and Logan behind the board. You can't see them. And they're better not heard and not seen. Uh, but today I'm, I'm here with someone who you guys have heard and seen before, who is one of my favorite doctors to talk to on the show. He's a staple, an institution like Baba Booey with Howard Stern or Billy D. Williams with uh, Han Solo. Dr. Blair Duddy is a practicing pediatrician in Las Vegas, uh, trained at UCLA, really, really passionate about the healthcare of our children. S tells it like it is, and today he's on the show to talk about sleep, why it's so important for children and adults, of course, and how we are absolutely, as a society, screwing it up. B. Duddy, what up, fam? <laughs> well, thank you for having me on. You know, I've been thinking about this the last week, knowing I was going to do the show again, which gives me a week to be nervous. But um, So as a pediatrician, I have to deal with sleep issues all the time. The two areas that I'm particularly interested in is the first few months of life with sleep deprivation, helping families navigate how hard it is with new babies. Um, and then the other uh, big passion is adolescence, getting enough sleep and specifically a political issue, which is early start times for high schools. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I wrote a letter to the editor in uh, Las Vegas Review Journal about what a bad idea it was. I think I called it educational malpractice to continue to start school at 7 a.m. when there's a 25-year body of evidence that says it's a bad idea. Well, when has public policy ever been based on evidence, Blair? Uh, I'm not going to answer. I don't know. But, um, so you wrote a letter to the editor. Did that get any response? Did it get published? Uh, you know, it was there, but, you know, it didn't change anything. It comes up. I mean, it's, you know, you have to put an upfront cost into it. Yeah. Uh, and then I tried to, because of that topic, and, you know, I did that discussion with the gifted. I was interested in that. I tried to angle to get on the um, state board uh, of um, education board, which is kind of like a community advisory group. Mm. Uh, got a nice rejection letter from, uh, very sweet, from Governor Sandoval. But they don't have a pediatrician on this panel. They have, you know, people you'd expect, like teachers, educators, families, uh, lawyers, business people. But they should probably have a pediatrician. What was, uh, so, yeah. <laughs> well, and the question is, like, I imagine... Actually, there's so much I want to ask you about this because everything from newborn sleep for right. the newborn themselves as well as the parents. But then why is it that you got interested in this? Is it because you're seeing disturbances in your practice that are affecting Well, I am you? all along. You know, my origin story to sleep was when I was... <laughs> Every time you talk I, about an origin story, I'm always thinking you were bitten by a radioactive <laughs> patient at some point and now you have asthma, but well, only on half your lung. I took a gap year between undergrad and med school, A, to apply, because, you know, that's a long process, uh, B, to try to make some money for med school. You know, of course, a year of working saves, like, you know, half of one year of med school, maybe. I know. Back then, now it's probably less. Uh, so anyway, um, one of the ways I made money is I was a human subject uh, for a bunch of sleep trials at the Stanford Sleep Research Center, which is a world-famous center started by, you know, one of the pioneers of sleep research, William Dement, and they had lots of studies going on, and they loved having an available 18 to 45-year-old who wasn't like a big drinker or druggie because they want to do studies on medications, you know, placebo-controlled, see whether, you know, that uh, they might make you drowsy. So like I was on the early trials of Buspirone, Buspar. Oh, nice. So you yeah, took some... Yeah. We well, don't know if you got the placebo. No, no. Yeah. Which is weird because I was substitute teaching at the time as one of my jobs. Um, but uh, I, don't, I think I was on placebo on that. 
You know, so most people like actors and stuff like, yeah, I was waitressing down at the cocktail lounge and Blair's like, yeah, so my side hustle was I was substitute teaching uh, high-end engineering because, you know. <laughs> well, actually, I did special ed. I, I oh. um, worked for a number of years um, at a camp for the blind, Enchanted Hills Camp for the Blind. And uh, so I had uh, experience working with uh, blind and uh, multi-handicapped kids. Mm. And then that's, that winter, I was a, a ski instructor for blind skiers at Kirkwood Meadows. Wow. Which was a fun, interesting gig. So I did a bunch of studies at Stanford. And then one of the studies was uh, they were studying jet lag, sponsored by the airline industry. And so to study jet lag, they have to give you jet lag. And you get worse jet lag going from west to east. So if you're at Stanford, they send you east. So I got a free trip to Japan. (laughs) uh, And uh, had to acclimate for 10 or 11 days before I came back. And that was like... Awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. And they and they paid you for the study too. Yeah. 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 So yeah, you had to like take your temperature Q four hours. Oh wow. And the Japanese are kind of germaphobes. So here's this like big American like, you know, in uh, on the subway taking his temperature. I got a lot of reactions from that. But. So, <laughs> so you know, so I did the studies, which I found interesting. And then of course with medical training, you go through sleep deprivation. Uh, my first job was a hospitalist, and I did half... Pediatric hospital? Yeah, yeah. At Huntington Hospital in Pasadena, and I did half 7P to 7A and half 7A to 7P, which can mess you up. Yeah. And so I was sort of trying to research um, what's the best way to do that. You know, can you bank sleep by sleeping extra before the night shift? The the jury's kind of not out on that one. I've seen at least one study that says yes. Others says, said no. Huh. Most studies say, like, once you lose sleep, it's hard to pay it back. Just don't do it. Yeah. Pretty, pretty much. You know, the overview before we talk about PEDS is that, you know, sleep is profoundly important. And that's sort of um, instinctually obvious. You know, we spend 25 years of our life asleep when you think about that. And, you know, all animals. Some more than others. Right. You know all I mean? animals sleep. Uh, even some insects have downtime. I think some of them might make melatonin themselves. So it, it's profoundly important. People, you know, have been looking at why. And there's sort of um, uh, larger population studies that show correlations, but they're getting better into really looking at the pathophysiology, right? So if you look at the recent studies, they can do, you know, functional MRI studies where they label glucose and see what's uptake in the brain um, to see, um, see what's going on in there during sleep. And if you talk about any long-term healthcare condition, there's a, there is um, sort of a connection uh, that can be exacerbated by sleep. So, I mean, it's a perfect topic for what you do. I think I'm glad to be the first and least experienced because you're going to want to get some major sleep research on to really talk about it. it. It is profoundly important. I think thinking about it this last week, it's as important as uh, end-of-life care and um, and mental health, I think I'd put that in there. So a couple of interesting things with that. The I saw a really interesting uh, piece, I don't know if it was in science or where it was, where they were talking about the glial lymphatic pathways in the brain, <laughs> the glymphatic pathways. Right. And they turn on during sleep, and yep. the theory is that they're actually draining the sort of effluent of brain right, activity. Including amyloid, which is, you know, amyloid uh, uh, is... Implicated in in Alzheimer's. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and um, we knew there's some population studies that show it's you know associated poor poor sleep with dementia, and uh, but this is sort of a pathophysiological way of saying like 
Well, really, here's a reason. Not, I don't know if it's a smoking gun, but it's 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 profound. I mean, the other things like insulin resistance, so obesity is associated both in adolescents and adults, um, cortisol levels, stress levels, um, even immune function. So yeah. if you sleep deprive someone and give them either flu or hepatitis A shot and then look at their titers, they have less robust antibody response. Yeah. Um, uh, obviously, you know, it doesn't take a researcher to know how horrible we feel when we haven't slept well, that we're moody, et cetera. But, but they've done studies where they look at uh, sleep-deprived versus not sleep-deprived, and um, they had them look at something that was whatever disturbing, I'm not sure what they took, and to get an emotional reaction out of them. And they saw like 60% or more uptake in the amygdala in the sleep-deprived versus the not. They literally, it lowers your threshold for moodiness. So it impacts mood, attention. You know, the REM sleep is felt to be the part where you consolidate memories and um, sort of put everything you did to the day in, in context. And so if you sleep deprived people, um, they just, they have very poor memories for it. So they'll, it, it's shocking. It, it, it's really every aspect. When you talk neurological, um, Oh, cardiovascular, like, um, it, you know, you lower your heart rate, you vasodilate a little bit, blood pressure goes down. Um, so It's almost like exercise in a way, right. you know, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, what's interesting is uh, all of this is from the New England Journal of Duh, because experientially, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, experientially, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> it just feels that way. When I was super sleep deprived, both with my child, my first child, my second child, and with internship residency, I mean, the moodiness, the, even now, if I get like less than four hours of sleep, I am just unstable that day um, uh, emotionally, and uh, quick, quick to anger, quick to cry, quick to, uh, and that idea about the sixty percent increased up uptake in amygdala again, that just feels correct because that's the seed yep. of those uh, <laughs> uh, inhibitory and, and fear response and emotion and all that. So, so what's interesting is everything you said describes a teenager. Right. So right. the question is, are we making our teenagers worse, more impulsive, higher danger, less memory and retention, worse at their studies by forcing them to get to school at 7 a.m.? Because you know they're going to go to bed later because they have so much to do. They have so much homework, so many activities. Yep. So the research says yes. The early research and push was done in Minnesota, um, and they pushed for uh, pushing back start times. So in the circadian rhythm of adolescents, they are they can't fall asleep like babies at eight. They really um, are not physiologically ready to sleep till more like 10, 11. Mm. Yet That's during, a thing, really. They yeah, can't, yeah, but during growth, uh, during adolescence, they need more like nine and a half hours of sleep average. Uh, human growth hormone is excreted at night. Um, and, um, you know, it affects testosterone levels if you're sleep deprived as well uh, for development. <clears throat> so you can't go to bed at 11 and get up at five and get ready for being at school at seven. And so, um, again, starting 25 years ago, they pushed for later start time. So now what's neat is they have data to look at, um, to look at what the consequences of late start times, uh, in some of these schools they did early. And so, um, you know, so the, the negative consequences include, you know, all that we just talked about. So weight gain, insulin resistance, moodiness, uh, irritability, uh, higher incidence of depression. So t serotonin receptors are a little different, uh, de you know, regulate differently uh, during sleep. So depression is really uh, a part of sleep deprivation. Um, focus attention. So occasionally I'll get a teenager where they, the, you know, the presumptive diagnosis rule out ADHD. 
they, you know, that's a diagnosis intrinsic that you're talking about in kindergarten, first, second grade. So sometimes the, um, the diagnosis is just relative sleep deprivation, right? If you want to mm-hmm. know what ADHD feels like, uh, get four hours of sleep and then try to learn something new, uh, which is kind of what we do in our resident training facilities. Pretty much. Pretty much as yeah. well. So, so when they looked at um, recent studies on, on the impact of later start times, uh, they did indeed get more sleep compared to the groups that haven't. And they saw like everything you would hope go get better. So uh, they saw uh, graduation rates, standard standardized testing rates go up, uh, decreased moodiness, irritability. And then one thing that, again, is, you know, um, intrinsic to sleep that we all know is like, what's the impact of drowsiness on driving and the disease burden on that? And it's, it's uh, huge. It's, so it's mass. I had a resident in our program wrap his uh, car around a tree, <sighs> broke his leg coming yep. back from a night float. And it wasn't even a call. It was just the circadian rhythm had been shifted. And oh, I fell asleep uh, at the stoplight a couple times during yeah. uh, residency. We've all had, you know, or not all of us, all of us in medicine and have had the micro sleep where you do the head yeah. bob and you're literally, if you do an EEG, that's happening, and you you will um, fall. You know that happens while you're driving. Um, that's very problematic. So the national data is something like a hundred thousand uh, crashes, not just teens overall, uh, due to drowsy driving. Something like ballpark six thousand deaths. That's fifty thousand injuries. Like that's a giant disease burden. Yeah. Uh, famously, there've been some. Um, I was reading, you know, again in preparation. There's been some major accidents that have thought to be contributed by. Um, by drowsiness. So like the Challenger, they thought maybe some of the, you know, people were sleep deprived or making some of the decisions around that. Um, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, um, Exxon Valdez. And then about a third of Gulf War deaths were friendly fire. And they think a lot of those were related to uh, sleep sleep deprivation. And so the army is really looking at trying to, you know, address that. So, I mean, the disease burden is ridiculous. So in the kids that got better sleep, where they had later start times, they had um, something like 70% less crashes in one study, 70% less crashes. With, with the later start time? Yeah. How yeah. did they do this trial exactly? Oh, this was just, well, they, they were looking still, at data sets. Yeah, they looked at, you know, thousands of kids in schools that didn't start um, uh, that didn't ha- that didn't have the later start time. So later start time, you know, all major organizations, the you know, sleep academies, AAP, recommend eight thirty or later for teens. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and nobody really you know, does. Yeah, well, my there are a few comments like, saying, "My um, our school starts at nine, et cetera. Yeah, my son was in a wonderful magnet school in town, but it started at seven, which mm-hmm. made me nuts. Yeah, and. Um, it's just it's unhealthy in on all those ways, and and you know there's this whole relationship to sleep that's modern, which is like sleep is for wimps. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And um, really, that we need to as a culture get away from that. Yeah. Um, when you go to CMEs on sleep, it's usually um, you know it's disease burden, like obstructive sleep apnea, which of course is horrible. Twenty year mortality increases like four hundred percent, some crazy thing like that. Yeah. So you, when you go to CMEs, they don't talk about this larger population view of, of sleep. But yeah. for healthcare three especially for the tribe where we're having a lot of people that are doing uh, night and- shifts, et cetera, it, it could not be a more important topic. In the hospitals, of course, um, it's incredible. You know, you're trying to get better, and um, you know, you're sleep deprived. I mean, that's obviously your purview. The hospitalist medicine. You know, you, people yeah. go into um, 
you know, ICU psychosis because of lack of sleep. So, you know, there's actually, we have, we recorded a piece about why hospitals are so loud and they're oh, preventing yeah, sleep. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. yeah and and uh, the, the, the general premise being that, you know, we are depriving our patients of healing, of glymphatic drainage, yeah. of, you know, memory retention, of actual, you know, hormonal changes that come with sleep that are beneficial. Plus we're torturing them psychically. Uh, and yet we consider that the standard. It's right. like you said, it's a cultural thing, like suck it up. You're in the hospital, right. I gotta check your vitals, you know, Q two hours at night or whatever, because the doctor wrote that. And then, you know, the nurses are waking him up. It, it's crazy. No, it's hard when I round in the morning and the, you know, around reasonably early to get to clinic. And if the mom is asleep, I'm usually rounding on newborn babies. Um, you know, I feel totally guilty. I'll try to see someone else first, but I don't want to wake them up because yeah, it's, it's the only sleep they've gotten. In. No, I mean, uh, there's a link between um, um, lack of sleep and postpartum depression. Like it's, you know, I have a, you know, everyone's got their own spiels, you know. Uh, and one of my lines is something like, if you have the opportunity to sleep, the only reason why you shouldn't is if the house is on fire, right? Mm. I tell them, turn off your phones, mm. get sleep. Mm. Um it just it needs to be prioritized, and in modern culture, with you know, sleep is for the for the weak. <laughs> right? Didn't I think Ben Franklin started the earliest quote like you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead, right, right, something right. like that. And, right. Um, um, but it's it's you know profoundly important. You know, it's interesting too because uh, the evolutionary consequences of sleep, it's a really bad thing from a keeping an organism safe. Yeah. And so you would think it survived billions of years of evolution for a reason. Right. It's there crucial, is, yeah. There, yeah, I mean, it's, it's helpful to look at that construct. So if you, they did a study where they sleep-deprived rats and they'll die of sleep deprivation before, um, uh, before starving to death. So, so prioritize air first, water second, sleep third, food fourth. Wow. Right. Yeah. Wow. It's really interesting. So here's the thing. Now we have kids. Okay. Now I want to deconstruct a little bit the study that you were talking about. I know it, we were not going to get in the weeds about it, but it's more a question of, is it correlation or causation? So in other words, are these students that are going to the later starting schools, are they self-selecting for just being wiser and picking schools with better education? No, no. There's schools that have chosen as a school to do it. And they, they know. Um, so no, it's not it's not that. It's mm. it really is the extra sleep. Mm. And some people posited maybe they'll go to bed later and not get extra sleep, but they actually have gotten sleep. So Rand did an, an interesting study where they looked, they analyzed like the cost of later start times and then the benefit. And of course, the benefit is often societal benefit mm. and doesn't benefit the actual budget of the schools, right? So the cost is something like $150 per student per year. They estimate like $110,000 per school and other infrastructure costs, lighting, et cetera. So this is to like get extra buses, get extra bus drivers to get them uh, to school on time. Uh, they thought that the, the two year, it was two years for a return on investment. And they, they estimate if, if, ever, if all schools in the US did it, it would be a $9.3 billion a year savings. So, wait, so, so, so let me ask then, why are we still starting so early? What's the argument to start early? It's finances. It's just, you know, it's the, the bus driver schedule. In Las Vegas, they do high school seven, middle school eight, uh, elementary school nine. They should do eight, nine, ten. Start school at ten. If you want to do a club before ten, that's fine. I kind of don't want kids out on the street at one o'clock anyway if they don't have any other activities, that's to the be other, honest. That's yeah. the other thing. You know, we're moving back to California, looking at the schools, the public schools. The, the elementary school kids get out at two. 
Right. I'm like, what the health? Like, th- w- th- my daughter, who's eight, will start slinging dope. <laughs> because if you give her that time, she's smart enough. She'll start a consortium. She'll be the top of the food chain. <laughs> but it doesn't matter because someone's getting shot. So the right. truth is, like, if you shift it all later, it's actually better for all of us. Better for the parents. Better for the kids. Better for the outcomes. Worse for the schools, you're saying? Worse for the bus drivers? Worse how is Just it more worse? expensive. More expensive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, every family's different. That's the whole point. Is that you've made the point many times. You have to, you have to apply, um, you know, recommendations and and um, um, knowledge in the context of who the patient is. So, like, it's hard if you're single parent, two jobs, and you have to shop at Vons at ten o'clock at night. You bring and you don't have anyone to watch your kids. You got to bring them in at ten o'clock at night. And that, that's right. Kay- Kayla Stutler left a comment. The partial reason is parents have to work. And, 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 right. And Carrie Bennett says, "How do working parents get around this schedule?" And and uh, and it's funny because I, I always I forget because my schedule is flexible. Right. So I'm applying my own story to this. I'm like, start them at twelve. And if you look at population quality of sleep, of course, socioeconomic status is exactly as you would expect, right? You know, it's proportion one over income, marriage, uh, um, you know, race. Mm. Um, yeah. Explain that more. So, what do you what do you mean? Oh, I mean, like, yeah, as a population, the the poorest sleep is in African American males. The best sleep is in married white females. Really? Yeah. And then high SES married. I guess you know you have more resources. Uh, I don't know. It's about Sleeping, if you're sleeping with somebody who's snoring, that's no good. Yeah, because I'm going to say, my wife doesn't sleep because I'm snoring like a yeah. dog. I, I got tested for OSA, though I don't have it. Oh, that's good. Yeah, but yeah, it, it's interesting. That's interesting. You know, one side thought, I'll, if I forget to say it, it'll, it won't matter, but I'm going to say it because I'm going to forget. Um, it, sleep quality is right. also very important. Yep. And I have had trouble with sleep quality for much of my life. I wake up at night. I, mm-hmm. I, I have dreams. I'm, it's just very active sleep. And, and so what I've noticed is, uh, and this is found actually in more avid meditators, with with um, uh, serious meditation, you learn to be sort of mindful of the present moment, aware of being aware, sort of metacognition. So seeing what your mind's doing, that carries over into sleep where if you look at meditators, they will report, and I've experienced this recently, being aware of being asleep. So not just That's aware cool. of dreams, but being aware <laughs> I'm asleep, but aware. And Might you, be frightening. It, it's a little disconcerting. <laughs> yeah. The thing is, they actually looked at this, and the reported sleep quality, despite this awareness, went up. And they, for all appearances, appear well-rested, but they're literally awake much of the night. So in other words, just aware. Not like that oblivion that you get in deep sleep. And very serious meditators, like people who are pretty woke, they will report being aware of deep sleep. And you can actually throw an EEG and they'll say, yeah, I was aware of consciousness without an object. So sleep itself is a multi-layered onion of interesting sort of getting at the nature of consciousness and things like that. Oh, it is. And, and you know, I for insomnia is a very common problem. You know, I run into the early issues with moms and getting enough sleep, but insomnia, mainly in older uh, kids, anxiety kind of goes with anxiety, yeah. with uh, insomnia. I had you can't, horrible insomnia. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, you know, giant percent of my families, I'm talking about meditative practices are important. Here's some options for how to do it. Uh, some people that are so anxious when they try to meditate and they're not doing it right because they're type A. Yeah. Uh, they're like, oh, I'm not thinking. You have to kind of let it go and get back into that or... Uh, there is evidence to support that that the other way, aside from totally emptying your mind, is to sort of find your happy place, right? To to close your eyes and imagine, you know, where your happy place is. And I'll tell, I'll give the example. So, right, to to help affect a change in the office, 
I have to see the people in front of me, know their context, know their social structure, and then like, what's my game plan? So it's all, that's the magic of, you know, primary care and having a medical home. So sometimes I'll tell, you know, my happy place is, you know, a few years ago we were at uh, SeaWorld and my daughter won like this literally eight foot round uh, turtle, plush turtle from one of those impossible carny games. And we pulled it to the beach and it was kind of chilly. And so we pulled the, uh, the turtle on top. It was like a, like a duvet. And I have this, this beautiful, you know, image of her look at me with her pretty brown eyes. And I can hear the sound of the ocean in the distance and, and the kite with the air flowing through it and the kids laughing while they're, you know, bearing their big brother. So I literally will point out to that's my happy place, but you need to have Uh that and give details into it. So how do you do that in an office visit, right? Uh So I do some, you know, I'll talk about the different apps out there, but you know, how do you, how do you actually on the ground get patients to, you know, improve in these areas? So meditative practices for like tons of everything, including sleep and anxiety, and then coaching them on, on sleep practices. So, you know, we're meant to get up, be exposed to sunlight. So getting sunlight, and it's probably, it's the eyes that you're mm. little, your eyes getting it. So even like if you have deep shades, that might not help. Um, getting dark in the evening. So of course, electronics is the is a huge problem. Blue light. The blue light, yeah. yep. So mm. cutting them off an hour or so before bed. A cooler room helps because when we get in deeper sleep, um, you know, we cool um, our central core temp. Um, sometimes, you know, famously taking a bath can make you feel relaxed. Some of that paradoxically might be that you, you know, vasodilate and then you get out and then you cool a little bit <laughs> mm. before you get into bed. Mm. Um, you know, I tell them try to read. Read is better than having something, you know, pushed at you through a blue screen. Um, Do, have, have you seen a, a, as devices as a major culprit here in your own practice? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so... No, if I had a time machine, I would take my kids device away until they're 18 <laughs> yeah yeah my, my my and again not to derail this conversation but my oldest is 11 nina and she uh, we gave her an iphone 8 but took away there's no social media none of that and she has sort of strict controls but you know how it is it's very hard it's hard and now she sits with it in her bed and watches spongebob and i'm like nope that's got to stop and, no it's very hard it's yeah. like you know it's like giving dieting advice. Dieting advice. It's easy to do. It's hard to hard implement. Hard to implement. Right. Yeah. They're they're addicted to those things. And I did yeah. too. I mean, I like the idea of knowing where my kids are at all times. Exactly. I like the idea that if my daughter's at a friend's house and the friend's older sister breaks out alcohol or something, she can go to the bathroom and text my wife a code word, you know, rebels, and then and then my wife will call and like, oh, I forgot you have a dentist appointment. So she's gonna get out of it. Got so it. yeah, yeah, yeah. For those reasons, um, being a typical. 2019 helicopter parent. <laughs> um, we did that, but in retrospect, you know, she's constantly getting little notifications, yeah. and uh, like we all do, th- th- those things are addictive. We all like eat up time on them. Since we've been in the moving process, the kids have been in flux, and they're not in camp or anything, and so they're going to sleep late, both of them, even the eight-year-old, and they're waking up like at six. Right. And I've noticed they're, they bounce off the walls. They're a little bit unstable. I am too, because we're all kind of in flux. But the truth is, I think a lot of it is sleep deprivation. If I could just get them back on a schedule, which we're going to do now uh, as things settle down, I think they'll, we'll find it. So, I mean, sleep is so crucial. And what about newborns, though? Because one of the stresses I think parents have is my child isn't sleeping. Aren't they going to die? <laughs> well, newborns sleep a lot, no matter what you do. They'll sleep 12 to 18 hours if you follow them with a stopwatch. Why does it feel like they're always screaming? Because they're up every Q, one and a half to two hours. Got it. And, and they're kind of noisy things. I don't know who said, quote unquote, sleep like a baby, like <laughs> grunting, sneezing, noisy. They're kind of noisy nasal breathers. Yeah. And so, you know, if I have 
family that has support, you know, I try to early on figure out how like the dad can help out with one feed. If a mm-hmm. mom is breastfeeding, you know, either give pumped milk or, you know, one bottle of formula is not a big deal here or there to let them get some extra sleep in. I've been working on this. Um, <laughs> and I think with a little hard work, I can at least make a millimeter of some kind of serosanguinous exudate. Is that helpful? <laughs> Uh, I don't know what to say. You know, I'm waiting. I know there are these nurses, and I'm waiting for a dad to want to like try to nurse where they Merce. put the yeah. yeah where they put that there. I haven't had one that wanted. Yeah, to do nobody that, really but. wants to do. It. So these yeah. little th- these little techniques that that actually help. Now, there was something I wanted to ask you before I pulled out my boob, and I've completely forgotten what it was. So please continue while I think about what it was I was going to ask. <laughs> oh, you. the Rand study. So what was the benefit? The, the you know there was a giant upside, like nine and a half billion dollars a year. That was basically comes from car accidents mm. uh, and the cost of that and sequelae and um, graduation rates and then you know ultimately um, work income right if someone you know isn't able to get a job because they drop out of high school or they get a low paying job yeah that doesn't contribute sort of economically yeah. so you know the school's point of view is fine but then fund me appropriately to do that yeah. if, it, if it is a societally helpful. How, how are we going to solve the problem of uh, parents having to work early? Single mom has to work at seven. Someone here has to get to casino shift at six. That's very tough. Have an early child care. Just make early it a, child Yeah, care. make it a priority. Yeah. It's hard financially. We, we, as a society, we need to wake up to this, don't you think? We're not... Oh, they mean the sleep in general or the prioritizing the kids? The, 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 the child care, the allowing parents to parent while also allowing them to work, getting to school later, it requires social support. In the old days, you lived in a tribal hunter-gatherer community where everyone right. took care of everyone. In fact, there's some data to suggest that early tribal communities, hunter-gatherer societies, the, the father, they were po- polygamous. So the fathers didn't even know who were their own kids. They just took care of everybody. And so it was kind of this interesting, very social thing. Now, we, we don't need that, although, you know, Utah's next door. But we do uh, require a little more social uh, cohesion than we've been able to muster in this country, do you think? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's about having the global view of the energy, time, money we put into helping these kids develop healthy uh, will pay off in the end. But that uh, requires a big view. Uh, yeah, uh, it, yeah. It, it, the problem is if, I mean, this is the political discussion is, you know, I only have to worry about getting elected the next few years, but you want someone worried about 20 years from now. Yeah. How are we going to change all these chronic diseases 20 years from now? I would argue if we as a culture uh, really attack this sleep thing, I mean, we're the, um, you know, the least sleep of any, I think, industrialized country, right? We work harder, longer. And have that attitude that sleeps for wimps. Suck but, it, world. Yeah, but okay, like, that's why we're not America number one, Iran. Puh. Right, but we, Soviet again, Union. Puh. I'm the Iron Sheik, but American. <laughs> I'm the American Sheik. So, but you know, when you look at all the disorders that it impact cardiovascular disease, uh, immune function, maybe malignancy as well, dementia, uh, depression. I mean, it's absurd. It's all the chronic illnesses you talk about here in, like, how do we solve healthcare 3.0? You know, it's about uh, primary prevention, not just treating something once someone has the MI. So Peter Atia, who I think you know um, of and was on our show, a friend of mine, really smart physician, studies longevity and health span, like living happier, longer. Uh, he's now focused 
very intensely on sleep because for exactly these reasons, the data just shows it's unequivocal. So why are we equivocating about it? Because again, culturally, it's a hard pill to swallow that we should spend more of our time asleep. And I would say we're not even unconscious. We're experiencing it's just in a different way when we're asleep. I don't know. Now, one question I wanted to ask you before I forget, co-sleeping. I did a piece on it with kids. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tell me what your thoughts are on co-sleeping, what you tell your families. Oh, I don't know if you saw, but I was triggered seriously by that because you ran that a few times. And yeah, every yeah. time I went to the comments and people were saying, I co-slept with six kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like commenting in there. Yeah. Like, please don't do it. Yeah. Uh, I did see that. Yeah. Don't bring your anecdotes in here. It's, you know, survival, survivor bias. And no, I've had three families that had a baby die in bed with them, you know, the first six months. Mm. Um, it's, you know, ridiculously important. There's, you know, like about a 30%-ish of, um, of quote-unquote SIDS deaths are really smothering deaths. Mm. Like the SIDS, the term now is like sudden uh, unexpected infant death, sort of includes SIDS and, and um, basically smothering. These are co-sleeping related deaths. They have uh, bassinet kind of things that'll go in the bed, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you put the baby right, you know, we want them to, bet, to, to share the room, right. but not sleep in the same bed as the baby. If they're right. two, that's fine, that's different. But the first eight to 10 months, they can get caught in the covers and mm. uh, smothered. Like the disease burden is huge, um, huge. Like the number of, of co-sleeping related uh, deaths would equal like half of total, you know, childhood malignancies all, all in zero to 18. Um, so people write in like, well, how do I nurse? Well, again, if it's right next to the bed, you nurse and go back. Um, yeah. You're already sleep deprived, right? Yeah. Because of how that goes. And then also if you can, uh, again, doing, you know, a relief bottle, uh, to get some extra sleep. So the first couple of weeks, uh, we try to really avoid, if someone wants to breastfeed, the bottle. Uh, you'll hear the term nipple confusion. They're not really confused. It's just preference. And so, yeah, if you do a bunch of bottles early on, the nursing process doesn't develop appropriately. Um, you want to see nipple confusion? No, thank Everybody's you. Everybody's real no, confused right yes. now because yes. this, this right here. I don't think they'd like the wiry hair that goes around <laughs> the areola. Hey, I manscape, okay? And <laughs> I'm proud a little of bit it. of that. But <laughs> So, um, so anyway, by two weeks, doing a relief bottle once a day isn't going to undercut the process. So I'll have mom pick a three-hour window, 6, 7, 8 p.m., nurse, and then go to the opposite side of the house where your mommy radar isn't going to wake you up, mm. um, play some background noise. And then two hours later, let dad do a feed. You know, I'll get like, they'll probably take one and a half to three ounces of express milk or formula. Two hours later, it's now midnight or one. And then a mom gets like a four or five hour nap in. It's sort of more restorative sleep, right? So sleep cycles go in about 90 minutes and we do like three to four a night. The early part is um, is the non-REM deeper sleep, sort of the restorative sleep. And then the REM is sort of where where you're uh, consolidating memories, that's dream sleep as well. Uh, you need both, um, but if they can get that early restorative sleep, that is just awesome. And so if they get four hours of sleep, they have a nurse for four hours, they can get a little bit longer, three to four hours later, at that point, um, another um, time to breastfeed, and so they might get there seven, eight hours in. So again, I tell them, if you have the opportunity to sleep, the only reason why you shouldn't is if the house is on fire. Mm. In which case, you may want to sleep through it because I want to die in my sleep. That's been my goal. <laughs> Violently or peacefully, I don't care, but it's got to be in my sleep because otherwise, 
what are you really doing, Blair? And I want to be dreaming. <laughs> I mean, dreaming about, you know, last night I had a crazy dream and we're going to end with this because it's dumb. Uh, and this was really, really helpful, Blair. Like I think people get a lot out of this. And uh, I want I this to be did. the start of you bringing some of the other experts. You know, I talked before, we were chatting before I, we came on and um, there's some people, there's a guy with a big center at Berkeley and then obviously Stanford, but it is so I'm out there, profound. so I'll just get these guys. I know, it's yeah. so profoundly important. It is really, I think of it as important as, you know, when I think about the top, top um, issues in medicine, end of life care, uh, psychological, psychiatric care, and people's psychological relationship to disease, um, and, um, you know, and sleep. Because sleep, in, again, it impacts obesity, and, um, yeah, it's just, it's yeah. profoundly Mar Mar Marjorie Yuhiko says, my lack of sleep during anesthesia school had me, uh, has made me, again, gain so much weight. I'm pre-diabetic, and now I'm on beta blockers for hypertension. They told me basically to suck it up. I mean, I think a lot of this is a sleep issue and I don't in some in some cases sleep is the epiphenomenon of the underlying anxiety stress right. etc yeah like you said you know your insomnia your, your sleep quality is poor so, so I had a dream last night oh thank you for the stars Hellarina and everybody who sent stars uh, Dr. Duddy is uh, is raking it in for the show thank you people are sending little tips um, I had a dream last night that uh, I was on Joe Rogan's show and he's a you know, big podcaster <laughs> yeah. And it was one of the weirdest dreams I've ever had because he didn't introduce me. We sat there and we just were talking. And the next thing I know, he's smoking weed because that's what he does. By the way, uh, you had mentioned you'd work for Special Ed when you were young. I think there's a strain of weed now called Special Ed. Of course. That's all I need to yeah. say. So, <laughs> so the, the, yeah. And Rogan and I were just talking. And then somehow it got released. Nobody saw it. And I woke up in a cold sweat and I almost texted Tom Heineber to say, Tom, did you see me on Rogan? Did I suck? <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's the kind of anxiety dreams I have, uh, Blair Duddy. You know, again, the REM sleep, a lot of creative people um, have had dreams and wake up out of sleep. You know, the whole sleep on a thing is probably a real thing. Famously, like McCartney, I think, wrote some songs based on dreams and uh, sleep. And so for someone who's creative, like uh, you guys, you know, thinking about that, I think is important. The drummer for Rush, Neil Peart, uh, actually used to keep a journal by his bedside because he would either wake up with ideas or right in that peri period, the hypnagogic yeah. period before sleep, he would have these insights and he would just go, oh, and he would remember to write it down. Because I think there is something in that, uh, in sleep that is, is promoting creativity, promoting memory. I would notice that if I pulled an all-nighter, I would do terrible on the test. If I pulled an all-nighter almost and slept for an hour, I would consolidate the memory and do much, much, much better, even though I really wasn't slept. But it was enough to clear out the no signal to noise ratio. You know, I mean, this field is so fascinating. I mean, if I, I might, if I picked, you know, if I did the research route, this would be something like, oh, I'd look at that because yeah. I think there's going to be more specific. Um, recommendations so the sleep environment before bed what's the best way to meditate cooling uh cooling devices someone did like a study on animals where they cool different parts of the rat hands versus whatever mm. and can promote sleep i think um in the diurnal thing the afternoon nap thing is a real thing it's not yeah. just you have a big lunch and and so maybe you know these tech companies where they work them uh, I think they do have those, like the little nap the little areas. That's actually yeah. quite smart. They should probably have that at the hospital. They probably like, would be it'd be great. And and they're getting towards they can sort of figure out like, well, twenty minutes is restorative, more than X. And so let's science the crap out of it, right? I'm with you. 
I'm with you. Science the crap out of it. Blair Duddy. <laughs> That's the new bumper sticker, people. That's if supporters have been asking. ZPAC supporters have been asking for a shirt. That's going to be it. Science the crap out of it. Blair Duddy. And on the back, it says, I'm a supporter. Uh, speaking of which, fam, if you are not a supporter, you uh, you suck, but also are awesome just for being with us. But do join the tribe because it's like four ninety nine a month and we get to have these really in-depth discussions. You're a supporter. Yes. Yeah. And I've seen your comments and you bring the game. You bring the thunder, Blair Duddy. The thunder from down under. Yes, we're in Vegas. Uh, by the way, I miss this 107 degree <laughs> oven that we're in. I actually do because being bald, all the heat radiates off. Yeah, it's, it was a nice June. It didn't get that hot. Yeah. We live in Vegas when it's like 100, 102. We're like, yeah, it's not yeah, so it's bad. Nothing. Yeah, 107 is bl- brutal. It's brutal. Yeah, it's, yeah brutal. it's like putting your head in an oven. Yeah, yeah an easy bake oven. So it's not quite hot enough <laughs> to bake the food, but it's close. Um Blair, thank you again, man. Oh, thank you. Like, really, I learned a lot, and I think this is, like you said, it's a like crucial piece that we need to look at if we're going to build a health 3.0 that Well, I, just, I appreciate that you get all opinions here, and that I just, I have a different perspective because my core competency is, you know, seeing patients, clinical medicine. I do, you know, 70% clinical, 30% other stuff, but... Um, but I think it's an interesting to have uh, how do you take the science and and translate it into on the ground helping patients? Yeah, it, it, it's going from central nervous system to effector organ and trying to combine the two. In academics, we have all central nervous system. But what if we did this, we did that, and the studies show this. But then to actually go through a nerve fiber and make a muscle twitch, that's a different game. Right, the social you determinants of health and yeah. how you t- treat patients depends on who they are and, and knowing them. That medical home thing to me is everything. Heaven forbid you're speaking the Health 3.0 gospel, yep. knowing the patient in front of you and caring about them in a in a compassionate way, not so much in a take their pain as your own way because that's gonna burn you out. Uh, Cognitive empathy. All right, fam, I love you, Blair Duddy. I love you, Z-Pack. Share this, become a supporter. If you sent us stars, thank you, and we out. Peace. Did not tell the rectal probe story. Wait, tell us the rectal probe story. Wait, you're out. (laughs) Are we out? (laughs) We're still going, we're still live. Oh no, I'm gonna get trouble. (laughs) If you don't wanna tell it. So part of the small print on that on that uh, study, the uh, jet-like study, yeah. was um, so temperature and circadian rhythm are linked. So I don't remember when I signed the thing, but I got back from Japan, so it was kind of in all the way. Yeah. So they had to check your temperature regularly. So to do that while you're asleep, you have to sleep with a little rectal probe with a with a wire that comes out of it, comes out your jammies, goes out the bedroom. You know, you're, you've got 26 electrodes glued to your head, right, plugged into the headboard. And so the tech can come by and check every few hours. So that was, that was part of the study. And they didn't tell me that one or it was in the small Dude, print. imagine what the small print said, though. It's like, uh, uh, you know, it's in that super fast, like, Micro Machines voice. Uh, there are several commentators to make it. May include butt stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That was amazing. Now we're out. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. (laughs) And so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, It just really helps the algorithms to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, 
Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st- really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.